0: I think in Japan, there's not this sense that tomorrow is wiser than yesterday. They, they realize that humans seldom evolve in a straight line. We mostly go two steps forwards, four steps back, three steps sideways. And I think that's how human evolution has been. And technology here in Silicon Valley makes us assume that we're permanently advancing.
1: Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off-topic. Today I'm thrilled to be talking with Pico Iyer, who is among the most revered and respected travel writers of his generation. He also happens to be one of my own travel writing heroes since his writing style, and in particular his book Video Night and Kathmandu were a big influence on me when I was getting started as a travel writer 20 years ago. I first met Pico in person at a writing conference in 2006, and since then I have, over the years, hosted him at my own events in places like Penn and Yale, and I'm always amazed by how gracious and eloquent he is. Seriously, the guy talks in fully formed paragraphs in a way few people can. Pico has two new books out this year, both of them set in Japan. One of them, entitled The Beginner's Guide to Japan, offers playful and profound glimpses into the country where Pico has lived with his wife for the past 23 years. And his other book, Autumn Light, uses his experience of Japanese culture to reflect on aging and death and making the most out of late life. Our conversation starts on the topic of travel and how the experience of travel has changed over the years. You know, Pico was one of the first travel writers back in the 1980s to acknowledge that travel isn't just a simplistic contrast of familiar places to exotic places, since in the globalized era, far-flung cultures have a way of mixing together in surprising and charming ways. And as we discuss, this has only become more obvious as travel has become easier and more accessible for a new generation. Travel aside, Pico and I really dig into the themes of his new books, particularly making peace with impermanence and the idea of death, and how the Japanese view these concepts in ways that can be instructive and even comforting for those of us who live in cultures that tend to avoid talking about death and impermanence. It really is a fascinating conversation with one of my favorite writers. If by chance you have a favorite writer or thinker you'd like me to feature on this podcast, feel free to send me suggestions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. And if you enjoy my conversations here, please subscribe on your favorite podcasting service, give it a rating or review, and spread the word. Please also take a moment to check out my sponsors, Airtrex, which designs multi-stop itineraries for vagabonding journeys, and Tortuga, which designs backpacks and backpack accessories specifically with the vagabonding traveler in mind. And just so you know, I only accept sponsors whose products I actively use in my own travels, so when I talk about Airtrex and Tortuga, I'm drawing on years of field experience. If by chance you're interested in sponsoring the show, please tell me about your product, give me some time to field test it, and let's talk. For now, please go to airtrex.com and tinker with their fantastic trip planning tools to test out your own hypothetical dream trips and check out Tortuga Packs at rolfpots.com/tortuga where we offer a 10% discount on all orders for podcast listeners, just use the promo code DEVIATE. All right, here's Pico Iyer. A lot of my listeners, and many of whom have probably read my most well-known book, which is Vagabonding, might not realize that along with uh, John Muir and Walt Whitman, a big influence on my thinking in that book was Pico Iyer, and maybe specifically uh, Video Night in Kathmandu. So I want to talk a little bit about travel before we move on to your new book. And and really, uh, um, Autumn Light is about impermanence in a sense. And that's something that really, as someone who's celebrating an anniversary of of a, a very important travel event, um, it's interesting to see how deep time can can affect the way you see things. So, uh, one thing that really struck me about your writing, and one reason why it appealed to me uh, in the '90s when I started reading you and when, when I started traveling, is that it not just talks about travel, but it talks about who we become when we travel. It talks about how travel turns us into, I think simultaneously uh, like sort of children, but also drunk adults, you know, that we're we're, we're seeing through a, a prism that, that bends reality a little bit. Um, and you talk about uh, you, you, you write uh, in in some ways. I think travel is about learning how to see, learning how to pay attention. It's an alarm clock in some ways, and it's a jump start to putting our senses on the setting where they're universally receptive. I think theoretically we could do that at our homes, and yet somehow surrounded by familiarity and routine, we know all too well our eyes tend to close, and we don't notice the things that are so wondrous for a visitor. So. Uh, how did you come into this into this way of thinking about travel as a transformative event?
0: Uh, I think all of us experience when we're traveling that we're suddenly, as you were just saying, loosed from all our moorings, all the ways we habitually define ourselves, and the, all the ways in which other people see us are... Uh, Completely dissolved, and I love that because I remember when I was writing *Video Night* in Kathmandu. I was living in New York, and I was writing for *Time* magazine. So in New York, if I met somebody, they would probably say, "Where do you work? What's your job, and um, what street do you live on?" Those were the the markers, and then they might say, "Which college did you go to?" As soon as I'm walking the streets of Burma, one week later. Nobody cares about any of that. They're responding to me in some much more essential way. And they're probably making misconceptions too, the way somebody in midtown Manhattan would. But I feel they're trying to assess, is this guy trustworthy? How kind is he? Uh, Does he look friendly? And that's much more important than anything on a business card or a resume. So I love the way that travel essentializes us. It makes us different people, than we were at home. Uh, if I was going to my office in Midtown and uh, a homeless person came up to me, I would probably walk right past that person and say, I'm sorry, you know, I have to be at my office at 10 o'clock, which is true. If I'm walking down the streets of Yangon and a homeless person comes up to me, I'm not going anywhere. I don't have any appointments. And I have to face that situation. I have to think what's the best response to him. And, uh, he's presenting me with a moral and emotional conundrum that it's my duty, um, to, to, uh, address. So, I think I felt freed by travel in that way, and able it was like being given a blank page on which I could draft a version of my identity i wasn 't deco graduate and such and such uh, doing such and such. I was this uh, loose creature in the world who could be uh, taken in any possible direction so so I loved that, and I loved of course seeing how we look through the eyes of um, the people that we visit and I often think whenever a classical travel writing is is often about let's say walking down the streets of uh, Bombay and noticing how funny the locals look And it's easy to forget that as far as the 15 million people in Bombay are concerned, you are the main source of comedy. You, the foreigner who can't speak the language, is walking backwards down the street and is getting everything confused. And, you know, I was glad to be turned into a comic character by some people I met and occasionally a romantic character, which had nothing to do with me, but just they thought, well, this guy comes from a rich country, so he's the closest I'm going to get to Richard Gere or however they chose to see me, it it was interesting and difficult to anticipate. So I love the way, I mean, characteristically, you instantly touch on a much more interesting aspect of travel than most people discuss, which is, um, as you say, uh, the ways we are transformed by the decision to make the trip, but then transformed in surprising ways the trip. And then I think the one thing I tried to do, especially in Video Night in Kathmandu, was to write each chapter in a completely different style to register the fact that when I was in the Philippines, I became um, a very open-hearted kind of earnest person. And then when I would go to Japan, I would become much more lyrical and self-contained and quiet the way the Japanese are and the way in which each country really remakes us in its own image. And I tried to reflect that so that the style, as much as the content of each chapter, would say something about, you know, clamorous, overcrowded India versus slightly impenetrable, efficient China.
1: Well, it's interesting that, in a way, we're moving toward, because your two recent books are about Japan, it feels like um, there's more discussion to be had about why exactly Japan, as opposed to China or the Philippines, is is where you landed. And I I think I know a little bit the answer to that. But I'm curious to know where this... Um, curiosity and desire to wander and to be the stranger in a strange land began because almost famously you're a guy who was born in England to Indian parents who grew up in California and now is more or less based in Japan. So is this something that happened when you were a child making those solo trips across the ocean or is it something that really refined itself when you were a, a, a university student writing for Let's Go? Or something that happened as a correspondent once you were a professionalized writer for Time magazine?
0: Well, again, as you perfectly say, you you not only know the answer, but express it very well indeed. It was just that freak of circumstance. Um, moving from England to California at the age of seven, and then working out that it was better for me to continue going to school in England. And so going to school uh, by plane alone over the North Pole um, every three months from the age of nine, uh, finding that that plane trip was a wonderful, enchanted space where I was not a subject to the regulations of anywhere. My parents were very kind to me, but in California I was my family home was on the top of a mountain so nowhere for a nine-year-old kid to go and my boarding school in england was essentially incarceration it looked like a prison but as long as i was in the plane um i could get as much coca-cola as i wanted i could meet all these fascinating people the cabin attendants were dancing attention on me i could watch movies it was this great zone of possibility and i realized that in some ways uh I didn't belong to England, I didn't belong to California, but the passageways or the conspiracies between the two places were exactly where um, I felt at home. So I think it it began with that commute to school as a little boy and travel became my second nature, really. Airports became kind of home for me. And then, uh, as you probably remember, when I was 17, I actually ended up spending every season on a different continent because uh, the summer that after I turned 17, my parents took me around India to meet all my family and to meet my ancestral homeland that I'd never really seen. And then I went back to England for my last term at school. And then I came to California um, to uh, work as a feckless busboy in a Mexican restaurant to save up some money. And then I got in a bus in Tijuana and went down to La Paz, And so by the time I showed up at college, um, I already knew that the wider world was infinitely more interesting and educational than anything I'd get in a classroom. And that in some ways, you know, as Melville said that the whaling ship was his Harvard and his Yale, and in some ways the Greyhound bus or the Pan-American highway was my Harvard and my Yale. Um, And then I think the other aspect in all this was that I never usually keep a diary. But on that uh, three-and-a-half-month trip around Central and South America when I was just 18, uh, I couldn't stop transcribing things. And I knew there were aspects of every experience that no camera could catch, Though so I did have a little brownie camera. And so every day I would write down everything that happened to me. Uh, and that made me think later, well, if i have gone to all the trouble of writing it down for myself, I could inflict it on friends or even on strangers. Um, and then I guess i you know I studied nothing but literature for eight years, not a single hour of any any other subject, no history, no science, no languages, no social studies. So the only thing i 'd really learned to do was read and write, and by default, um, I found that I was writing most freely when I was traveling, and that somehow, through no grace of my own that the way I grew up um, gave me three sets of eyes and made me feel at home wherever I was because if I was in England or in India or America, they were all partial homes, but they didn't contain the whole of me. And then I realized, well, if if I'm in Brazil or Greece or Thailand, those are partial homes too. I, I wasn't disoriented to be a foreigner uh, or indeed a tourist. So I think all of that... Uh, and then, as you say, beginning to come to that realization. As I was serving time in grad school, uh, my last two summers, of graduate school, I did the Let's Go guidebooks, which was such a difficult training. But later, I realized was a perfect um, training camp for travel writing because I had to travel so quickly and take so many notes every day that um, it was ideal preparation for what I I did later. So, uh, But I think uh, you've probably heard me say this before, but when I was growing up, it was quite unusual to be a a little kid with an English voice and an Indian face and an American green card. And now it's so much the norm. In fact, most kids in big cities are more international than I am. So I think travel writing has got much more interesting for that reason because it's almost about kids who have six cultures inside them interacting with cities that have... 200 couches inside them. So I actually think the the genre of travel writing is more and more exciting.
1: Yeah, well, one, one reason why it feels to me, or it felt to me like your travel writing at the, in, in the late 1980s, around the late time Video Night Camp Mandu came out, was kind of pioneering is that it acknowledged the non-essentialist vision of travel and travelers, that there's East and there's West, which itself is is sort of an essentialist distinction, but there's also a dialogue and a romance going on, and that there are certain illusions that are projected sort of in a joyful way by both parties on each other. Um, and it need not necessarily be a, 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 a snooty viewpoint or a Sort of a staid academic analytical viewpoint, but it's more of a dance and and more of a romance. And so, do you feel like that goes all the way back to your to your air flights over the North Pole when you were a child, or is this something that you sort of just sort of in, instinctively realized was a part of the way travel was either going or had always been?
0: Well, that's a great question, and I think it it does go all the way back to those travels as a child because I was. You know, quickly I became keenly aware, maybe at a subconscious level, that truly when I went to my 15th century English boarding school, it's no exaggeration to say all the boys there, what they really longed for was to be in California. And yes, in the summer of love, in the land of wide horizons, in the place of possibility where there was no history to hold you back. And then I would fly back to Santa Barbara in the middle of the counterculture, really. And there I sensed many people were longing for the the strong roots and the steadiness and um, the certainties that a place like England uh, had in abundance. So I grew up traversing... That romance, and sometimes exploiting it. You know, when I when I arrived in my school in England, I would very proudly tell my friends how I'd been walking down Telegraph Avenue, or I'd seen The Grateful Dead in um, my vacations, and they would get so envious. And then when I um, came back to California and was at the vampire movie at the drive-in, and the the uh, person repelled the vampire by reciting the Lord's Prayer backwards in Latin, I could do that. Um, surprising my neighbors in California. So yes, I, I think commuting between two cultures that were fascinated by each other and that were also separated by a common language really were, um, set, laid some subconscious foundation. And then I remember when I began taking long holidays from Time Magazine in the 1980s, the first place I went to was Thailand. And I'd never been anywhere like Southeast Asia uh, in terms of uh it, so exotic then, so romantic, so ungraspable. And of course, this image of a romance quickly took <laughs> very literal form, because even in 1983 in Bangkok, one of the most common sights you would see was uh, a Westerner, not obviously irresistible, <laughs> walking around town hand in hand with a girl younger than his daughter, Um and... One couldn't help but wonder what does she see in him, Uh, what does he see in her? How much is each a symbol for the other of a world that they want to touch and and very different from their own. So that that gave it a a very concrete grounding. And as you know, since you travel so much, probably more than I do, um, 34 years later, uh, that hasn't changed at all. I'd say it's increased. I was spending time in Singapore recently, and singapore where i'd never seen so much of that seems entirely made up of these incongruous east-west couples and i guess the one big change which i tried to chronicle in later books was that the product of those couples would be neither eastern nor western and as i think you said at the beginning of your question that's the heart of this that salman Rushdie was doing this in fiction already because he was an indian who'd grown up in england and so East, West weren't hard and fast divisions for him. And then I was doing some of the same in nonfiction because there I am, an entirely Indian kid by blood, entirely brought up in England and the U.S. East and West don't honor any barriers in, in Me Too. And so that seems seemed to be sort of the next chapter in the story. And whether it's Barack Obama or Zadie Smith or so many of the prominent people now, uh... My hope has always been that we, we've moved beyond East-West divisions and we've moved beyond black and white divisions because our two-term president and some of our most prominent writers are black and white at the same time. And uh, I, again, I think everything's gotten much more interesting now um, that's uh, as the, result, the product of the way in which um, two sides of the world were all over each other back then.
1: Yeah, well, it feels like the, the, the condition that gave us Pico Iyer and Salman Rushdie is, as you said, is much more common. That, that young people are just more used to, to being much more international, even if they aren't mixed by blood, than they are mixed by fascination and internet, um, connectivity with other parts of the world or friends from other parts of the world. And one thing that struck me, you were talking about traveling with your brownie camera back in the day and, and making journals. Well, these days, I think young people would be more inclined to travel with their iPhone camera and maybe a, a blog or some other sort of social media diary. Um, and one thing that I've always noticed about you and that you've written about quite a bit is, is sort of a, an intentional willingness to sidestep technology in the, in the interest of paying attention. And I'm curious, am, am I talking to you on a cell phone now or on a, on a landline?
0: <laughs> Rolf, you know me too well. No, it's true. To this day, I have never used um, a cell phone. I wouldn't know how to turn one on. And just as you said, it's because um, I feel I have enough data in my life as it is, and I don't have enough time to make sense of it. So I don't want even more pouring in on me. I do want that freedom just to try to um, process the stuff i already have now I, I so this is my own eccentricity and it's partly because i'm a creature of habit and i still do things the way i did in 1981 before these technologies existed but i think the new generation forms um are terrific. And uh, I'm delighted that people are traveling with iPhone cameras and, and blogs are exactly the equivalent to the diary I was keeping when I was 18, except now wonderfully they can be transmitted around the world um, very, very easily. So I don't feel that travel has lost anything in um, the age of technology. Many people do. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm excited that it's taking these these new forms. And especially, you know, I know you have been teaching for a long time. Uh, I just, for the first time in 37 years, uh, taught for one semester these last few months. And coming into a classroom for the first time since 1982, I think the thing that most excited and inspired me was that this generation, 18 to 20 years old now, truly thinks of the whole world as its neighborhood, and that um, problems of uh, sex trafficking in Nepal are as local to them as if they were taking place in Jersey City, and that concerns about the environment in Africa are as close to them as in Alaska. And I really think it's happened so dramatically and so ubiquitously that we take it for granted now, but I feel the world has really um, stepped forwards uh, hugely in the time I've been doing this job. I, I remember not long ago, I met a friend of mine from England who had been in the same fourth grade classroom as I, and he's grew up in London, very sophisticated cosmopolitan family. He told me recently that when he came into the classroom and he saw me, age nine, that was the first brown-skinned person he'd ever seen growing up in England in the 1960s. Now he has four daughters and when growing up in London, and when they bring friends home, they never even think to tell their parents uh, so and is of Jamaican or Pakistani or Nigerian uh, background. They're all just Londoners. And I think nationalism, we're all aware, of, is, is sort of on the rise, maybe partly because it's on the run. But I think really people are seeing far beyond the divisions that were so prominent uh, when I grew up. And one of the striking things was I was teaching a version of travel writing this last semester. And so um, the first session of the first class, I thought, well, the only thing I can offer these 18, 19-year-old students is the fact I've been traveling for 45 years and maybe I've been to places that they haven't. So I invited each of the 16 in the room to go around and say why she had signed up for a um, class on writing about place. And one person said, well, I just spent the last 29 days in Nauru. The place I'd never oh. heard of. The next one said, oh, I'm, you know, I'm off to Mauritania in a couple of months, so this, would, this class would be useful. The next one said, oh, yeah, I mean, actually, last week I was in Kazakhstan, uh, where you, Rolf are going, but also, of course, I was in Kyrgyzstan, too, and it was interesting for me to compare the markets there with Tajikistan. And <laughs> within about 20 minutes, I saw these kids were far better traveled in their way than I. There were two from not very affluent families. And the university had sent each of them for a nine-month gap year before they even arrived at the university, and had sent one Mexican-American young woman from Sacramento to spend nine months in Varanasi, India, had sent a young woman from New Jersey to spend nine months in Changsha, uh, China. So even the ones whose parents didn't have the resources to send them around the world, by the time they arrived at college were deeply familiar with foreignness and being in a radically alien culture. And, and it continued the same way throughout term. We had a one-week spring break, and different members of my class went to Singapore, China, Mexico City, Morocco. And when it came to the exam period, and, and as I say, these are not necessarily privileged or affluent students but they're people who really have a a hunger for the world and they realize that they're in a generation where they can see the world as never before so there's a one-month exam period at the end of the semester and I talked to one of uh, my students and I asked him what he was going to do in the summer, and he said, well, I've got this boring tech job, so you know I'm pretty much stuck here. And I said, oh, that's really a shame, because um, you're, you're not going to be able to travel the way you love. And he said, no, that's, that's true, but the first week of reading period, I'm going to go just to Israel for four days, and then the third week of reading period, I'm going to go to Morocco for a few days. And he'd worked out how using miles, he could keep just flying around the world um, and seeing these interesting places, even even when he was doing exams and on the brink of a fairly intense summer job. And so um, it all reminded me that whether they're using iPhones or blogs or what social media, whatever f- forms they're communicating through, they're inhabiting a new world beyond my expectation and, and will see it in ways the likes of me could never have imagined. So when I was in my 20s, I thought, well, The the mingling of cultures and uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken in Beijing and Merle Haggard in the Philippines, that's something a little new that not so many people have written about. But I think now there's a whole different world out there that this new generation is claiming, which is really exciting.
1: Yeah, well, I think technology on its good side, especially for this younger generation, it's demystified travel in a way that certainly didn't exist when I started traveling in the 1990s. And yeah. even even young people who don't have the purview of a university can just go online and see someone who's not that much different than them. That um, You don't have to be a fully privileged white male to, to see examples of people like you traveling the world these days. It's, and so that's it's delightfully demystified travel. Although I'm wondering if there's a part one one really prescient quote of yours that uh, that I think might apply to younger generations who might not know this is it says you said the one thing that technology doesn't provide for us." with is a sense for how to make best use of technology. Put another yeah. way, the ability to gather information which is now so crucial is less important than the ability to sift through it. So to this, to this younger generation who, who sees far less barriers to travel, even among less privileged people of society, how might you encourage them to navigate that technology as someone who, who really was able to become a global soul without it?
0: Well, I always stress It took me a long time, could be 25 years, as a full-time freelance writer to realize that my best writing took place when I was taking a walk or when I was away from my desk. And that there are certain things as a writer or as a person you can do when you're poring over the data and the micro details. But there are other things in terms of just understanding that you can only do when you're not distracted by the details and when you can really see the wood for the trees so I think whether you're of my generation or of the current young generation um, the only important thing is uh, to leave Certain of your distractions behind, the better to see the larger picture. And I'm I'm so impressed that you excavated that quote of mine because, funnily enough, I remember that I delivered that that line about technology for Wired magazine, the sort of epicenter of technology in 1999, just when the tech companies were at their boom. And I think they asked various people to write on technology, and I thought, back in the 20th century, even, well, this is the one thing that's technology can't give us and that we have to go inwards uh, to make sense of. But the, thing that, the two things that really surprised and impressed me when I was suddenly exposed to college-age kids this last term, and again, I feel embarrassed to talk about this because I know you've had a lot of exposure for many years to this generation, but for me it was a novelty, was almost every major writer as I see it um, who's working in this field that I happen to mention, they, they didn't know. They were completely unfamiliar with what I would call the, the principal writers on place of the last 50 years. But every time I gave them a reading assignment, they were brilliant at taking apart reading and understanding it and, and bringing critical faculties to it. And they were extraordinarily good writers, too. I think much better than I and my friends were. So in that sense, again, it, it gave me hope that um, although their frame of reference might be more Game of Thrones than V.S. Naipaul or Peter Matheson, uh, when confronted with a country or an experience or a piece of text, they had no problems at all in knowing exactly how to deal with it and how to respond to it very eloquently. And the university where I was teaching actually rules for all the students in using a pen and notebook. So before I entered this classroom, I'd been sort of apprehensive that people would be on the phone all the time and all I would see was laptops. Um, there was not a single laptop or phone in a three-hour seminar every week. And these guys were proceeding much, much as I would have done in 1975 when I went to college. In other words, um, just taking notes and wrestling with, with texts. And so um, it made me I've – I've never been worried about the effect of technology. A lot of people worry about the effect of technology on kids. And my sense has always been that humans are humans and we always find a way to sort things out and find our balance. So when I was young, the two exciting forms of technology were the car and the TV – And pretty soon, I and many of my friends noticed that the car just drove us into a traffic jam and the TV was making us numb. And so many of my friends, like me, live more or less without a car and without a TV now. And kids who are high school age now are probably intoxicated with uh, Instagram or FaceTime or whatever it might be. But in time, they'll find it's not making them happy. And uh, I'm sure they'll reach to something else. So in that sense, when I was teaching recently, I didn't feel I needed to give any advice to 19 or 20-year-olds, because I thought that they will come to their own good solutions. Uh, And of course, they understand these technologies much better than I do, so they'll probably come up with better answers than I could.
1: Well, there is something really exciting about the idea of young people traveling and what they're in store for. And, And generationally, young people these days are probably prepared in in new and different ways um, technologically for what they're going to find overseas. But one of one of my favorite moments in in one of your New Japan books is when you hear when somebody is reading to you what sounds like a very fresh <laughs> and prescient take on Japan and you realize that he's reading you your own words from decades before when you were new and fresh in Japan. And it made me think of the English philosopher um uh, I think his name is Henry Spencer, Herbert Spencer. Uh, mm-hmm. He, he talked. He talks about a Frenchman he met who had been in England for three weeks and was really excited to write a book about England because he felt like he understood it. And then after three months, the same Frenchman wasn't so sure about his book. And after three months, uh, Herbert Spencer talked to him, and he felt, and the Frenchman felt like he was not at all qualified to write about France. And so. It's interesting that after all these years of being somewhat based in Japan, you now have two books in one year about Japan. And a quote that you have in one of those is, I've been living in Western Japan for more than 32 years, and to my delight, I know far less than when I arrived. A land of streamlined services gives you very much what you expect, and so much that you didn't expect under the surface that you don't know what to do with it. So what was the process over the course of these 32 years to coming to the point of no longer being an excited young traveler, but being this person who's been somewhat Japan-based for a long time and has finally come to the point where he feels like he can write about it. Ralph, you
0: are such a good reader. Thank you for for picking up those moments from two different books and stringing them together to form um, the perfect conclusion. I'm especially happy that you alighted on that moment when uh, somebody was quoting to me from a book I'd written 30 years ago about Japan, and I didn't recognize it, because I think that book called Autumn Light is really about the strengths that autumn has that spring would envy, but in that case, the wisdom that spring has that autumn would envy. And indeed, as you said, when I arrived in Japan at the age of 30, I was so fresh and everything was so new to me that I really could see many, many more things than I can half a lifetime later. And it was, it was amusing and tonic to be reminded of that. So I think in terms of these two books, there's probably too much I could say about them. But the first thing I would say is that, as you remember, I wrote a book after my first year in Japan in 1988 about my discovery of this Country, this lifestyle, and a person—later, my wife—who I hope will be mine forever—and it was very much about being released from my office in New York City and suddenly loose in this country that felt like my secret, hidden home, and just the the exhilaration of beginning to navigate a place. Um, And I thought it'd be really interesting to write a book exactly 30 years and half a lifetime later, because. Well, we all know it's very easy to fall in love, but it's quite hard to stay in love. And staying in love and being with, for example, the same person for um, 32 years involves different blessings and different challenges than being in that giddy honeymoon state. And so I very consciously... the book I wrote in 1988 had the subtitle Four Seasons in Kyoto, and it was about a newcomer arriving in this magical ancient capital with 17 World Heritage sites and 1,600 temples lining its hills and being, of course, enchanted by a city like no other. My working subtitle for the book Autumn Light, 30 years later, was A Season in the Suburbs. In other words, I wanted the subtitle as unexotic and boring and unappealing as possible, because I think at a certain point in life, the challenge becomes, uh, it's easy to find the beauty and wonder in Kyoto, but how do you find the beauty and wonder in a completely anonymous suburban neighborhood and just going to the supermarket? And I think most of us do, and we have our own ways of doing so, but I thought that would be an interesting uh, challenge for me. While I was writing this book, uh, a friend from New York sent me this wonderful sentence from John Burroughs, the great writer and explorer, who said, if you want to see something new, take the same walk every day. And so that's really what I've been doing for uh, 26 years. I've been living in this generic suburb of Nara, Japan. It looks completely like uh, a Steven Spielberg stage set. It couldn't look less like one's romantic image of Japan. Our little rented two-room apartment has no tatami mats, no shoji screens. All the buildings in the neighborhood are Western style. All the streets are completely straight. Uh, there's not a single shrine or temple in our community. And even the two main drags are called School Dory and Park Dory, using the English words um, as if to convince my mostly elderly retired neighbors that they've attained their dream and made it to California. So it's a totally synthetic place. And I thought, well, how interesting to try to write about how one can get excited in a neighborhood that seems to have nothing going for it and to be not exotic at all. But in fact, is a very deep and ancient and spirit-filled expression of a culture. I think of Japan as an old man in a Planet Hollywood t-shirt, and he's always up to the moment. He's very fashion-conscious. He's got all the trappings of the West and the rest of the world, but that doesn't make him any less old or Japanese. And um, so I thought it would be a different way of coming at travel writing to find, I guess, the exoticism and surprise in what seems to be the most banal setting. As, As I'm saying that, I'm remembering that one of the assignments I inflicted on my students this past semester was to write a piece about somewhere that sounds uninteresting. Because I think nowhere is uninteresting if you can bring an interested eye to it, and that you know, because you're such a student and teacher of travel writing, that a skillful writer, Philip Roth, can make a place like Newark, New Jersey transfixing, absolutely transporting, whereas many a less talented writer will go to uh, Tibet or Mali, and the, the prose is absolutely flat. So I think, I've always felt that, as a traveler that destinations are much less important than what we bring to them, and that if you're wide awake, just walk down the street wherever you happen to live, and it's full of secrets and surprises. Um, conversely, if you're kind of sleepwalking through life, you can go to Bhutan tomorrow and come back with nothing.
1: Well, it's funny that you mention that because literally in my classes I've said that the same thing, although my example is that Pico Iyer could go to the 7-Eleven. Um, and, and, and then find something compelling to write about. And that's so funny because the thing that I really grabbed onto from Autumn Light is the fact that um, a recurring place that you travel to is a health center where you play ping pong with elderly people. And I actually knew that you, this is something you did because I think in something you wrote earlier, you said that one reason why you enjoy not being technologically centered is that instead of staring at your iPad at home, you can go and play ping pong in the community center? And and here, years later, now here's a book that involves, uh, in that very 7-Eleven sense, going to a health center and playing ping pong with uh with older people. So, in life and in writing, why ping pong with elderly people?
0: <laughs> now it's, it's so interesting to hear you say all this, Ralph, because I remember when I brought out my last major book, which was seven years ago. We didn't. Um, an interview by email and I think you were the first and so far last person ever to ask me about my ping pong skills even then so I was very impressed that you'd already intuited that this was a a shadow theme in in my life But um, so my book is about autumn, and therefore about things ending, it begins with the death of my father-in-law, my 86-year-old mother-in-law being moved to a nursing home. I'm worried about my 82-year-old mother who's living alone on the top of um, a mountain in California. And the years are accelerating, and each year the autumn is equally radiant around me in Japan, but each year I'm one year closer to oblivion. So. It's about um, impermanence and that Japanese sense that we find delight in things precisely because they don't last. And it's about what they sometimes say in Japan, which is life is a joyful participation in a world of sorrows. And how do we bring the, the real joy of life and the inevitable sorrow of life into the same picture. So given this framework that's uh, about the coming of the cold and the dark autumn leading to winter, I thought it was really important to have a place of of light and delight and excitement. So that's why in in between my walking around um, temples and contemplating the falling leaves, as you said so well, I walk up a hill 15 minutes every day and play ping pong with my friends in their 70s and their 80s. And Every now and then, a teenager will show up in our little room and one of my friends, 82 years old, will thrash the teenager which shows that, again, autumn uh, can be triumphant uh, over spring, even when it comes to certain physical activities. But um, I wanted to make sure that that there was this counterpoint because the beauty of the ping pong uh, circle and this is true of any club that we're a member of is every time i go there's a slightly different set of people there but in some ways it's exactly the same and it's it's offering me the same release every day and in in japan they say that the water is always churning but the river stays the same and my book is really about what changes and what remains changeless. And in a ping pong club, the actual participants are probably different from day to day, but the overall uh, harmony and beauty of, of the, um, the group remains uh, very much the same. Uh, and I think on a very practical level, the, the reason that I wanted to include the ping pong club was that um, I've lived in Japan As you know, but not every listener would know, I've lived there for 32 years on a tourist visa because I've never really wanted to engage with official Japan, which I think includes some of the less interesting and imaginative sides of the country. And I've always been drawn to what's private and domestic and interior, which is endlessly unexpected. But for the, in the ping-pong club, for the first time ever, I was a member of a Japanese group, and I was the only foreigner in a group of 30 Japanese, mostly retired executives and grandmothers. And so it it taught me um, how to function in a Japanese setting. And given I've never worked or studied in Japan, I'd never learned that before. So, for example, in the ping-pong club, I learned how to try really, really hard at every minute while playing ping-pong. never to want to win. And in Japan, winning is not such a good thing. Nobody keeps track of the score. We change partners. We only play doubles. We change partners every five minutes. We play best of two sets. So quite often, there's no loser. And it's an induction into really um, a whole very different Japanese way of thinking, whereby you go to play ping pong, not with a view to being a champion, winning a game, coming back exhilarated because you've defeated somebody else, but creating a situation in which everybody can feel like a winner. And it's more like becoming part of a choir or indeed being part of a dance where you're working with somebody rather than against somebody. And again, that's it's an, something essential to Japan that's so different from the England and the US, uh, I Grew up on. I know in my second book, A Beginner's Guide to Japan, I mention how Japanese baseball games end in a tie if the score is level after 12 innings. And because um, the league standings are based on winning percentage, a team with lots of ties can finish ahead of a team um, with more victories. So often, Japanese baseball teams are not trying to win, they're just trying not to lose. And the first time an American manager was brought over to Japan to lead a professional team. This was Bobby Valentine in 1995. He took this really mediocre squad. He led them to a stunning second place finish and he was instantly fired. <laughs> and various foreign journalists were surprised by this. And so they went to this team spokesman and said, what's with that? Why did you fire him after he had such a good season? Back came the answer because of his emphasis on winning. And I think, you know, you and I probably in England and the U.S. were raised to believe winning is a good thing. In Japan, not so. So I write a lot about the, the ping pong club as a, a shorthand for some of the ways fundamental assumptions of life are very different in Japan from the way they are here.
1: Well, I think it's interesting that you mentioned that your favorite baseball team it just has packed stadiums, even when they're doing very terribly. Yes, um, And as someone who – my favorite team is the Kansas City Royals who won the World Series uh, four years ago and now are not so good and now their stadium is not so full. So I think there's something very Japan-specific about that. Um, And I'm curious about other Japan specificity of of aging and impermanence, you know – you don't just go to play ping pong in a culture where losing it there's a different relationship with losing games but you're also in a place you're in a country where more diapers as you say are sold to the elderly than to babies it's an aging population um and so i'm curious to know is the relationship with time you, you mentioned you quote philip larkin you say everyone tries to ignore the passing of time it feels like perhaps japan is not quite so oblivious to the passing of time. How does that affect people's relationship to age in Japan?
0: Yes, such a good question. I mean, traditionally, of course, across East Asia and most traditional cultures, uh, age is something to be revered rather than feared. Uh, I'm sitting here in California today talking to you, and... Around me in Santa Barbara, I think many people are trying to look and feel as young as possible. And often people are assessed on the basis of how fresh they look. When you go to Japan, or probably parts of China still, uh, the older you are, the, the better, because the wiser you are expected to be. And in Japan, you quickly find out that one of the first polite questions you'd ask somebody when you meet them is, how old are you? because then you know uh, where you stand in relation to them, how deeply to bow, what kind of honorifics to use, uh, how much to defer to them, depending on whether they're 65 or 85. So my feeling is that, um, as you say, I think impermanence is common to everywhere, and I think you have autumn in Kansas, and you certainly have autumn in New England, and it's radiant here too, but the Japanese have made almost a religion out of impermanence. They love the cherry blossoms precisely because they only last for 10 days and then they're gone. They love James Dean because he was a human cherry blossom. He flared briefly and then he, he was no longer. Uh, in the Tale of Genji, which is, I suppose, the Japanese equivalent to the collected Shakespeare, the word for impermanence is used more than a thousand times. And the central bell in in Kyoto rings in a a way that suggests to my Japanese neighbors um, this is about to end. The world is not forever. That's the message you hear everywhere in Japan. And I think the biggest difference between Japan and the U.S. in that regard is that, of course, it's a very old culture. It's been around for 1,400 years. Uh, It's suffered through endless amounts of fire and earthquake and warfare and much else. And so I think the Japanese do have a very different relation to time. At the beginning of the 20th century, a house in Tokyo was expected to last only for three years before a fire burned it down. Here where I sit in California, we're ever more worried about forest fires, but we could still never get our head around the notion of a house lasting only three years before it's gone. Uh, The main uh, imperial palace, the former home of the emperors that occupies the sixth of Kyoto, right at the heart of this big city of Kyoto, I think that's burned to the ground 14 times over the the many centuries. And I think when I was a teenager coming back to California from my school in England, California was so exciting because it's a land of the future tense and of opportunity and uh, endless possibility. And I really enjoyed that when I was growing up. But when I hit a certain age, I thought, well, now I need to learn uh, how to get older. And the place to go for that is a wise elder culture, such as Japan, that's not so um, much of an expert on youth, but is um, a great expert on living with old age, suffering, and death. And as you say, old age is probably the biggest sociological problem in Japan. Uh, I think they have the oldest population on Earth. But instead of addressing it uh, just through statistics and uh, uh, alarming trends, as one would read in a newspaper, in this book, I wanted to give that a spin, as it were, and look at it through people who are in their 70s and 80s, who, in my experience, are often full of zest They're freed of their responsibilities. They're actually having a much better time than when they were in their 40s and and 50s, and to sort of put a human face to this sociological um, problem. And uh, I remember I was, of course, in Japan when the tsunami took 18,500 lives in 2011. And I remember right after the tsunami, people I knew in California seemed much more worried than people in Japan. And as you and the whole world witnessed, the people who were the victims of that in Japan um, startled everybody by being very quiet, by not seeming to complain. And I think that's because they were living in this culture which already for 14 centuries had been training them in uh, the art of loss and the art of unexpectedness. And there's still a very vivid sense of gods in Japan, the way they would have been in ancient Greece, or maybe in Shakespeare's England. And so people there are keenly aware that things can change at any moment, and they're, they're pre- prepared for that in, in certain ways.
1: It's interesting how reading your book was, was weirdly affecting for me, uh, even though maybe I'm on my front end of, of considering some of these questions. I'm 48 years old, as I interview you right now. I recently, uh, went back to my 1994 vagabonding journey when I lived in a van and traveled around. And, and, um, I was really amazed to commune with my 23 year old self, but I also felt this strange sense of loss, this, this idea that I really am far removed by the years from my 23 year old self. And also when I'm based in Kansas, I travel a lot, but when I'm home, I I come to Kansas and my next door neighbor are my parents who are in their 70s. My dad will turn 80 this year. And so in reading your book, it really made me think myself about these questions that are often, these questions of impermanence that are often ignored in the United States. And I know that you're speaking of fires. You lost a house and many possessions to a fire not long ago. Um, Well, actually, it's been a while now, but um, it was certainly a um, something that you've addressed in writing before. And then you went and you had this experience with Japan uh, that you that you reflected on at book length. So I'm curious, is there a way to make it easier? Is there a way to make peace with time uh, in a way that is coherent? Or is this experiment just a way of reflecting in a new way on the process of time and impermanence?
0: Hmm. Henry David Thoreau, who's been really one of my heroes and companions since I was a little kid, he has this wonderful sentence about how if death is seen as a law and not an accident, it changes everything. In other words, uh, we can't be shocked by death or by approaching death because that's the fate of all humans. And if we're aware that it's a reality and that we can't quarrel with reality, we have to make friends with reality, make our peace with reality. We can't, uh, uh, refine it or argue it out of existence. I think that's already a help. I mean, again, I'm living, I'm talking to you in California, which is the age, the, the land of endless summer, the age of perpetual youth. People talk here about singularity and the prospects of, in Silicon Valley, so to speak, designing or manufacturing humans who could live for 150 years or who could live forever, I wonder if we'd really want to do that. Because what I notice now is, I suppose, the human equivalent of climate change. Um, Happily, your parents are still a little too young for this, but um, we all know many, many people who well humans are living longer than they've ever lived before but many many people are living for five years ten years fifteen years after their minds have begun to come apart and um their bodies are still there but you get the sense that they're very tired and they want to go to sleep for good and i spend a lot of time with palliative physicians and it's interesting to see how regular physicians are often professionally committed to keeping humans alive but palliative physicians who are thinking about the emotional welfare of those people often think, well, these people would, in some cases, rather say goodbye. They're ready to go. They've lived a rich, good life, and they don't necessarily want to sign on to five more years of suffering and pain or five more years of being comatose. So I, I'm i not a wise person who could offer answers to how to deal with impermanence or death, but I do think in everything in life, how we look at things makes a huge difference. When I remember when my house did burn down and I literally lost everything I own in the world, including uh, my next three books and all the notes I'd been collecting for, to make a literary career. Uh, 550 houses in Santa Barbara were burnt in that fire. And as the months went on, I think some people were devastated by the loss and always will be. And others began to realize after a period of adjustment that it wasn't just a loss, but it was an opportunity. And for example, in my case, I noticed that losing everything in the fire, when I started to replace it, um, I only needed maybe 10% of the things I'd had before. And that, as I say in one of my books, Autumn Light, everything that was really important, my notes, my photographs, my keepsakes and souvenirs from my travels, I could never replace and everything I could replace, which is to say clothes and uh, furniture and books, that was not important. Um, I still wanted to write. I was still possessed by various topics, but I didn't have notes. So I learned the important art of writing without notes and trying fiction. And in fact, losing my house and my family home here in Santa Barbara made it that much easier to move more or less full-time to Japan. So it's just a small example of how we're we're not defined by circumstances, but by what we do with circumstances. And many people will go through the same event, whether it's a, a forest fire or a tsunami or an earthquake. And some at the end of it will think, well, maybe this is freeing me to do things I couldn't do previously. And others just think bereft. Oh, I've been stripped of everything. And now there's no hope. But I think to some degree that's a choice we have. And so too with you know, pretend that death is never going to happen and it catches you by surprise. And then suddenly you haven't prepared for it uh, emotionally or in any other ways. Um, Acknowledge that it's a reality and inevitability and then you say the things you want to say to the people around you. You finish the projects that mean the most to you. You relish the maple leaves blazing in autumn because who knows, you may not get to see them next year. So um, that's, that's I guess, how I respond to some of the less happy aspects of existence.
1: Well, I, I think this is actually something I've touched on in other podcasts before. I, I think in life, so much, and this is understandable, so much advice is given to young people for becoming, for becoming who you are. There's so much focus Especially in a place like the United States, about the different factors and tools you have to become the person that you want to be or that you're meant to be. There's a little bit less advice once you hit middle age for appreciation. Um, But there is some advice about how, once you have become, I think it can be toxic to just be endlessly ambitious. And so there's a point at which you have to accept. What life has given you and learn to appreciate it on its own terms in a way that someone at the middle of their life might be able to do more wisely. But then we have this, this third category to sort of oversimplify things, which it sounds like the Japan, the Japanese have put more time into thinking of, which is, which is the autumn of life that we have a very goal oriented young part of our lives, we have a very appreciation slanted middle part of our lives. So the question is, how exactly do we embrace this aut- uh, this autumnal time of life um, when you know that is often considered a time of, of de- decline or even decay? So uh, keeping in mind that we might have caught some of my listeners off guard thinking that this would be a, a <laughs> travel-oriented Pico-Ire <laughs> conversation. Um, Keeping in mind that you've meditated very deeply on, on, on impermanence, what's something that you can leave uh, listeners with on um, how to best frame one's worldview to encompass autumn?
0: Hmm. Well, when you began talking just now, and you were talking rightly about how we stress becoming, I was expecting you to say what we dre- don't do not train people for is being. So we're training them very much for the future tense and as you were saying that's exactly what you need when you're 15 or 25 or even 35 but we're not uh, training people uh, to find their delight in where they are right now in living in the present tense and one of the things I notice about Japan is people have a great gift for appreciation and uh, they don't pitch their expectations too high. What I find, you know, going back and forth between California and Japan, in many ways I feel that they're almost opposites. And California is a great land of expectation, but what I run into a lot here is disappointment, that people have beautiful ideals, but when reality can't be transformed to exist in accordance with those ideals, they're crushed or broken-hearted. My Japanese friends pitch their expectations much lower, but therefore they're really happy at whatever um, comes along. And I think in my book called The Beginner's Guide to Japan, um, I talk about how when I first arrived in Japan in 1985, I said to myself, well, America is the land of can, possibility. Japan is the land of must, duty and responsibility. And I think that might be a little simplistic. It's the kind of thing you think of when you're in your twenties and you arrive in a very different place. But I think what Japan is aware of is that freedom is best enjoyed within limits. In other words, that um, a sonnet is often more beautiful than free verse because it's got some shape to it. That famously, um, tennis is most fun when there's a net there. If there isn't a net, there's no game of tennis. And it's exactly the boundaries of life that are responsible for the beauties of life. If you're living in the future tense, well, tomorrow never arrives. So you never get your fulfillment. Or if you're living for that sense of becoming, as as you said, uh, I think I realized this when I was in the corporate world. And it's one reason I moved from my job at Time Magazine in midtown Manhattan to uh, an empty room on the back streets of Kyoto. So when I was at Time Magazine, when I arrived, you know, I wanted to... Be a good writer, and then I wanted to write cover stories, and then I wanted to write the Man of the Year story. And um, each time I received an attainment, I thought, now I have to look to the next one. And I realized at some point that's never ending. I'm never going to be satisfied. I'm never going to be fulfilled because you know, if I if I won the Nobel Prize, maybe I would think, why can I not win the MacArthur Genius Grant or something beyond? Uh, and there's no end to uh, that sense of goals, to, to, as you were saying so well. Um, and maybe just living in a small room with um, a very constrained sense of possibility, I'll be much more content and I, I won't be restless. I'm, I'm probably one of the things I grew up with through my gypsy boyhood was restlessness. And I thought what I need is to be absolutely satisfied with what I have rather than hungering for what I do could have, don't have. And a perfect example it just strikes me as I'm talking to you is that I'm sitting in my mother's house right now. And she has a very big house in the hills of Santa Barbara. And there are three uh, whole rooms that are full of books. With the result that if ever I want to put my hands on vagabonding or some book I really want, I can't. It'll take me six hours to go through these three rooms, and I probably won't find it at the end of those six hours, and I'll have to go and buy a copy of a book that I already have. In Japan, in our tiny two-room apartment, I have one shelf for books only, and I can always find every book I need uh, within six seconds there. Uh, I, I'm, in other words, I'm not drowning under an overabundance of choice. And that having one shelf of books makes me much happier than having three whole rooms of books. And living in a rented apartment for which my wife and I pay $700 a month as if we were still students actually makes me happier than being in this um, Big house right now in a privileged resort town, uh, in, in California. That, um, you know, the, the more isn't better and that, uh, a room with nothing in it can fill you up much more than a room with clutter. So that's a long and digressive answer and probably it doesn't leave your listeners with anything specific, um, About autumn, except that the beauty of autumn is that it's got spring inside it. And, uh, in that, to that extent, it'll always be wiser than spring. Uh, the young reporter who arrived in Japan and quoted lots of lines to me from my 30 year old book that I didn't recognize pointed out that I saw things when I was 30 that I couldn't see at 60. But I think I'm much calmer at 60 than I was. At thirty, uh, partly because autumn goes deeper in one's spirit than um, than spring, and spring is the first step towards summer, which is the first step towards autumn, whereas autumn is the first step towards winter, which is the first step towards spring. And insofar as I think in Japan, there's not this sense that tomorrow is wiser than yesterday. They they realize that. Humans seldom evolve in a straight line. We mostly go two steps forwards, four steps back, three steps sideways. And I think that's how human evolution has been. And technology here in Silicon Valley makes us assume that we're permanently advancing. But I think in our own lives, as in our relations with our parents, our siblings, uh, our loved ones, we realize that we're often lurching backwards. We're not moving in a steady line. And I think this book, Autumn Light, is very much about, um, about that fact. Progress doesn't move in a straight line. Decline doesn't move in a straight line. My male friends in the ping pong club who suffered through excruciating 20-hour days in an office for 40 years suddenly become little boys again when they retire. And in their 70s, they're much more carefree than at any younger stage in life. Um, And that therefore, we can't really second guess nature. And I think I, I trust cycles much more than I trust the myth of Progress And, of course, America is the envy of the world because of its belief in progress, and those of us from older cultures love America because of its confidence in the future tense, and that's something it'll always offer to the world. But a future tense without a sense of past is a bit out of proportion, maybe.
1: This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to Pico Iyer's new books about Japan, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.